0: When you think of California cuisine, do you imagine baby lettuces doused in olive oil and carefully arranged on white plates? If you've ever driven down the Highway 99 corridor, which cuts through California's Central Valley, you might have a different sense of the state's contributions to global food culture. In the late summer, you'll pass acres and acres of dense, low tomato plants being harvested by machines that spit them out onto trailers bound for a string of processing plants that dot the valley. Driving Highway 99 or I-5 any hour of the day or night from July through September, you'll see trucks piled high with tomatoes, often spilling off the sides as the trucks turn corners. But a few spilled tomatoes doesn't mean much for an industry this size. 2015 was a record year, in fact, for processing tomatoes in California, with 14.3 million tons harvested. That harvest secures California's Central Valley yet again as a critical producer of one of America's favorite condiments, ketchup. On the surface, this cheap condiment might not seem to have anything to do with fancy California cuisine. But as it turns out, there's an incredible tale that ties the two together. It's the story of the invention of the mechanical tomato harvester. I'm Ildi Carlisle Cummins, and this is the first in the CalAg Roots podcast series produced by the California Institute for Rural Studies. CalAg Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming that shed light on current issues in agriculture. You can read more about our stories and see some really cool illustrations related to the stories at our online story hub at www.agroots.org. Stay tuned for more stories this winter, and please reach out and let us know what you think of these ones. We asked Bill Herger, a civil rights lawyer who works for a nonprofit law firm called California Rural Legal Assistance, who was one of the people at the heart of this story to help us understand why this was such a big deal. Bill was excited to help us narrate the story.
1: Ah, uh, hmm, la 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 la. <laughs>
0: That's right, I think that's the thing to do. We'll bring Bill in here in just a minute, but first here's a little background. Until 1962, all processing tomatoes, those are the ones that are made into soups, sauces, and pastes, were harvested by hand by large crews of farm workers. Back then, nearly 5,000 farmers grew these tomatoes in California, often on small plots of land grown alongside other crops. Farmers depended on agricultural guest workers called braceros to harvest their tomatoes. The Bracero program brought these workers from Mexico to the U.S. starting at the end of World War II. Okay, here's Bill. The
1: harvester was developed because the industry, the growers, uh, foresaw the ending of the Bracero program. And they had used large numbers of Braceros. And they assumed that with the termination of the Bracero program, there would be a large labor shortage. That was not really the case. As, as became clear once the machine was released, there were tens of thousands of available farm workers who were put out of work by the machine.
0: True, and that gives you a sense that this story isn't all rosy. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. Let's get to why this machine was so amazing before we talk about the problems with it. So, why was this considered such a feat of engineering?
1: As you can imagine, the tomato is a pretty fragile piece of biology. It squashes pretty easily, it spoils pretty easily, and not many people could foresee the idea of a machine that could somehow pick and transfer this product mechanically. The only way that the machine a machine could be developed would be one that actually cut off the plant, took the plant up into the machine and shook the tomatoes off the vine.
0: In order for tomatoes to be harvested mechanically, you needed a plant with the right characteristics, a machine designed to work with that plant, and a whole new set of farming practices that made the plant and the machine work together. Two UC Davis researchers worked together to meet this challenge. They were a plant breeder named Jack Hanna and an agricultural engineer named Kobe Lorenzen. To find out more about these researchers, we talked with Bill Friedland, a sociologist at UC Santa Cruz, who was one of the early critics of the tomato harvester from within the university. Bill interviewed Hanna and Lorenzen about their work.
2: Why don't you do something useful?
0: That's what farmers would supposedly say to Hanna. And this is the way Bill describes Hannah and Lorenzen's approach to their work.
2: In most of the sciences, the tendency was to take one variable and work at that one variable. So Jack Hannon had to make a tomato that would have a tough skin on the one hand, and he had to make a tomato bush that would produce all the tomatoes at the same time that ripened at the same time, like cherries on a tree. Because if you have a machine that's cutting the root, you can't have a, quote, normal tomato find.
0: Hannah and Lorenzen worked for more than a decade on this tomato and the machine to harvest it. Some say they were the laughing stock of UC Davis for a while. In order to be successful, the plant scientist had to think first about the physical properties of the tomato, if it was going to survive machine harvesting and shipping, and then second about the flavor. The tomato Hannah created earned the unappetizing nickname of the square tomato. Despite major skepticism, Hannah Lorenzen prevailed. By 1963, the Bracero program was in its last days, the machine was ready, and the industry was eager to put it to work. The machine was a triumph for the processing tomato industry. When the mechanized tomato harvester was released, production practices shifted dramatically. There was a major upswing in the industry. In fact, the amount of tomatoes grown in the state doubled. That meant we had much more tomato paste for ketchup and all our other favorite tomato products produced here in California. The invention of the tomato harvester was not just a technological advance. It was a genuine breakthrough in the way that scientists thought about agricultural development. And it ensured that California farm fields would produce plenty of processing tomatoes for decades to come. Ketchup for everybody. But, You knew there was a butt coming, right? The invention of the harvester also helped create a force in the opposite direction, launching the California food movement. How did that happen? Bill Herger, the civil rights lawyer, and plenty of others were not fans of the machine. With the release of the harvester came an onslaught of negative social impacts that Bill and many others struggled to address. Okay, let's bring back Bill here.
1: The results of the tomato harvester for both the industry as it had existed prior to the machine's development and for labor were devastating. Um, You know, 95% of the existing processing tomato growers were out of business within five years.
0: The new technology brought swift change to the Central Valley. Once the processing tomato industry decided that they were going to adopt the machine, the canneries started paying a premium for them. So that was a big incentive for people to machine harvest tomatoes. According to Bill Friedland's research from the time, the industry significantly consolidated. Here's how he describes that.
2: We went from 4,000 growers to 600 growers. So in the process, we began the economic concentration of the industry. You got... People that began to specialize in tomatoes and growing larger and larger acreages.
0: So many tomato farmers were out of business because this new machine cost so much and so quickly became the industry standard. Those who couldn't or didn't want to buy the harvester were pushed right out of the market. Along with farmers going out of business, over 30,000 farm workers lost their jobs. This triumph in engineering basically eliminated the need for farm workers in the processing tomato industry. Here's Don Villarejo, one of California's longtime voices supporting farm workers and the founder of the California Institute for Rural Studies. The industry had been saying that they needed the machine because of an expected labor shortage as the Bracero program ended, but that's not what happened.
3: People who had driven from, say, Arizona, Southern California, Mexico, or wherever to come and work here in the tomatoes found that there were no jobs. And there were literally thousands of workers who came seeking work, many of whom had expected they would be able to work a full season picking tomatoes, but there were no jobs. So there was a social impact that was quite considerable.
0: This didn't go unnoticed. In fact, it upset a lot of people. Small farmers, the farmers who couldn't afford the machines were upset. Students and many faculty at universities across the nation were upset. Public policymakers were upset.
1: You know, farm labor was, does not really have a political voice, but organized labor who saw what was happening to farm workers certainly was raising their voice as to why publicly funded institutions were using taxpayer dollars to put workers out of business. And it all coalesced around the fact, that last fact, that this was a publicly funded university using tax dollars to develop these labor-displacing and, indeed, small farm-displacing machines. There certainly had been examples of other types of harvesting machines that had developed, that had displaced large numbers of farm workers. The Combine Thrasher was certainly a major example that displaced tens of thousands of workers in the fields, but that was privately developed. You know, it was accepted as a consequence of the marketplace. But to publicly fund, to do this as apparent public policy, uh, really generated a great deal of soul searching and uh, backlash.
0: The heart of their frustration was not the harvester itself. It was the fact that public funds were used to create it. Because this machine was developed specifically to benefit large-scale growers, the result was a victory for a few and a major loss for a lot of people. There was no small-scale tomato harvester ever created, even though there had been small-scale harvesters invented for other crops.
1: I grew up in Ohio where it was important to generate a large amount of livestock feed during the summer that needed to then be stored and fed over the almost half of the year when um, uh, forage wasn't available for animals. The only balers that were really available at that time were large-scale balers, and so hay baling in that era was typically uh, carried out by custom balers who would serve many, many farms. But the industry saw a market there, and... uh, came out with a very small family-sized hay baler that could be operated by a small, medium-sized tractor, and we jumped on that, that made a huge difference in profitability, in the quality of the crop and in the profitability.
0: The tomato harvester, made in one size only, said get big or get out. So those that didn't agree with that path forward began to organize. Activists both on campus and off campus organized together They held public demonstrations, on-campus dialogues about the role of the university, and formalized their work by starting up a nonprofit, which they called the California Agrarian Action Project, or CAP, that could be used to take legal action against the university. Let's hear from Don Villarejo again, one of the early activists around the issue.
3: The demands were not to stop technology. No, that's a mistake. We were not trying to stop any kind of mechanization. What we were saying was that in many ways mechanization actually relieves workers of the risk of injury from manual labor, which is true. On the other hand, we did argue that the technologies that were being developed by the university favored large-scale agriculture, in that, for example, the tomato harvest machine at $100,000 in 1975 was not something that a small tomato farmer could afford. If you're only going to use it for several weeks of the year, you
4: can't put that kind of money out, there's no way. these investigators really, these academics, they started to figure this pattern out, that this pattern which was very much about getting rid of farm labor jobs and driving up the size of farms. And as that pattern became apparent, people realized that that was not what the University of California was supposed to be doing, nor was the research and extension function supposed to be doing that. My name's Elizabeth Martin. Most people know me as Izzy. I'm the CEO of the Sierra Fund. I was about 20 when I ran into these folks. Um, they had advertised a job as the an executive director position. They had, you know, I don't know, six months of funding at 400 a month or something yeah, yeah. nuts like that. Yeah. And um, I was hired as the first executive director of mm-hmm. the California Agrarian Action Project. CAP
0: organizers worked hard to rally attention around the tomato harvester. And they formed a community in the meantime.
4: And I love to sing. I love to sing and dance, you know, mm-hmm. silly Izzy. Um, and so we thought it was really fun at Agrarian Action Project um, meetings to sing. Mm-hmm. And we used to, every Friday afternoon, we'd turn all the machines off at five o'clock, you know, all two of them, there was no computers. <laughs> um, and we'd pull out the popcorn machine and the beer from under the couch, and we'd um, eat and drink, and we'd sing.
0: So farm workers are being displaced, small farmers are being priced out, and lots of folks see the university driving these changes. The activists at CAP took legal action They pushed the California legislature to assess how the university was evaluating the results of its research. And eventually, CAP and 14 farmworkers filed suit against the university. They argued that the university was improperly using its federal funding. You see, the university gets some of its research money from an act called the Hatch Act, which funds agricultural research at land-grant universities. CAP argued that this money was supposed to benefit small family farmers, rural residents, and consumers. And the court agreed. They thought that Congress also wanted Hatch Act money to support research for small family farmers. The court also found that the university really had no way of tracking who their research was really impacting. At this point, activists were feeling great. As Bill puts it,
1: We were all feeling pretty elated. Um, We thought that we took a lot of satisfaction in seeing the result of the intense legal research that had uh, led us to understanding what was the intent of Congress back in the 19th century when it passed the Land-Grant Acts, something that no one had really looked at up to this point and something that the university... Uh, belittled that that had all come to fruition in a kind of logical and policy oriented result. And yeah, we felt very good about that, and we were inundated by inquiries from all over the
4: country about what we had accomplished. I don't think any of would have happened that way without the lawsuit because it raised it in this fundamental issue of who controls the research agenda. Mm -hmm. And why are they controlling it that way? Look, as a public university, you should not be the handmaiden of industry.
0: Ultimately, the university appealed the original court's decision and Cap lost the lawsuit. But in some important ways, they actually won this fight. The issue got lots of media attention across the U.S., which sparked debate. And the university was forced to respond. As Don puts it,
3: Rule one, it always takes much longer, much, much longer, much, much longer than you ever expected. But when it changes, it's going to change fast. So the struggle around the research priorities and all of that had been going on for decades before us. But it just happened in a very short period of time, whatever the constellation of the stars was, we were able to get response from a wider public, we were able to muster widespread public support, we were able to get a great deal of media attention, and we embarrassed the institution to a level where they had to do something. I mean, they really had to do something.
0: The university had 100 mechanization projects in the works that all came to a halt. Mechanization research within the UC system froze for about 15 years. And the UCs were persuaded to start up programs aimed to address social impacts of research. They hired farm advisors to work with small farms. They hired Spanish-speaking advisors for the very first time. And under pressure from activists after the lawsuit, they started up the UC Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program, or UC SEREP. SEREP was created to focus on more long-term issues in agriculture and the food system, and to focus on work that crosses over between hard science and social science.
4: By the time I left in 1988 and moved up here and started to really work much more deeply in the farm worker world working for CRLA, mm-hmm. it seemed like we'd won. We had UC SERUP, you know, we had Spanish-speaking co-op extension agents, we had the agriculture – it seemed like we'd won.
0: Outside of the university, there was also a flurry of development in activist networks that had a vision for sustainable agriculture in California. Talking about these issues isn't easy now, and it wasn't easy then. Izzy tells us that she ran into trouble both inside and outside of the university when she wanted to cut to the heart of the matter.
4: And everybody else was talking about science and how to how to make crispy, you know, delicious kale salads, which nobody had ever even heard of. <laughs> um, how to eat these greens? I mean, people wanted to talk about all that safe stuff, but when you started to talk about power. People are like you would made a bad odor or something, and yet that's what it's about. It's mm-hmm. about power. Scientists are always saying to me, well, I don't do political work. Mm-hmm. Oh, but you work for the government. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me that. Mm-hmm. You know, tell it to yeah. Copernicus, you know.
0: But Izzy, Don, and their fellow advocates did make inroads into improving the university. And the organizations they founded were the earliest alternative food system innovators in California. Many of them are still active today. One major reason why Izzy and others at CAP were successful is that they recognized the political nature of the scientific breakthrough that produced the tomato harvester. That's a difficult but really essential task.
1: I think that's a key story here that there is opportunity for grassroots level organizing and not merely that grassroots level or organizing can be effective but that at that level, people have to be concerned. People have to be vigilant.
0: So what will be the next big research challenge for us to address? And how will we both inside and outside of the university face it head on together? The UC Davis scientists, Hannah and Lorenzen, never would have imagined it. But in a way, the mechanized tomato harvester paved the way both for the industrialization of our food system and for California's local food revolution. While adding ketchup to California cuisine's white plate might seem like sacrilege to some, digging down to reveal the roots of our food system and getting real about California cuisine might help more of us keep these critical questions in focus. This story was produced by the Calag Roots Project at the California Institute for Rural Studies. We could never have put all this together without enormous amounts of help and endless patience from our amazing audio producer, Aubrey White. Huge thanks to her and also to Bill Herger, Izzy Martin, Don Villarejo, and Bill Friedland for spending hours with us developing this story. Thanks also to Gail Wadsworth and Mike Corville at CIRS for their vision and guidance. We received support from the Robert and Patricia Switzer Foundation, California Humanities, and the Agricultural Sustainability Institute at UC Davis, as well as many, many donors who participated in our crowdfunding campaign last year. We are deeply grateful to you for making this possible. Please check out the Cal Roots story hub at agroots.org. And while you're at it, take a look at the incredible archive of research on California farming available at our parent organization's website www.cirsinc.org. That's cirsinc.org. Thanks for listening.